The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on Get Him to the Greek. Joining me from Sydney, Australia, by phone, is Alice Tynan, a freelance writer and a film critic and blogger. Hi, Alice. Hi, how's it going? Pretty well. It's great to have you on again. Alice has contributed, you should know, to Slate podcasts before. You were the winner of our Slate Culture Gab Fest conversion contest, which was a, a listener contest we had where people had to convert a non-podcast listener and then tell us their story. And people can go um, listen to the Gab Fest to hear Alice's wonderful conversion story. But as her prize, she did a guest endorsement on that podcast. And she did such a great job and is such a good um, film interlocutor that I thought that I would have her on for... for um, that I thought I would have her on for this spoiler as well. And also, you should know, listeners, that I combed the globe to find... I literally had to go to the other side of the planet to find someone to spoil this movie with me because after I saw it, I realized it really needs to be spoiled and that everything I wanted to talk about would have given away a secret from the movie. So the review will probably not actually contain very much of what I think about the movie. It's all here, so I'm glad you're listening. (laughs) Well, I'm happy I could help. It's great to have you on. So um, let's start off just with a quick reaction. Um, Disappointed? Happy? Did you laugh at Get Him to the Greek? I laughed a little bit. I loved the beginning. I was totally with the the kind of Live Aid spoof of African Child and um, this kind of glam rocker, you know, killing himself politically. Right. It starts off with a fake music video, we should say. A fake music video for a sort of We Are the World type um, fundraising benefit song. Yes, and it's awful and it's brilliant. And I was and I was on the idea of this road movie and the whole idea of getting of getting this rock star to the Greek theatre, but then it just it lost me. I just couldn't continue on the on the journey and um some of the laughs were great but in you know, in essence I just wasn't really thrilled. Yeah, I think I have to agree with that assessment overall. Let's let's walk through a quick plot summary before we get to some of the, the reasons and decide about the places where it, it did start to, to lose us. Um, so we start off with this young um, A&R, I guess. I never qu- quite get what the, the phrase A&R representative means, but a, a record company executive, a ta- sort of talent scout for a, for a record company, played by Jonah Hill. His name's Aaron Green. His boss and the, the CEO and the mogul of this company is played by Sean Combs, who's quite funny, I think, in, in a small role. And um, and he dispatches Aaron Green to London to bring back this rock star, this partying, out-of-control rock star, Aldous Snow, played by Russell Brand, to get him to the Greek theater within 24 hours, is it? I think they have about a day. I think day. it's three days. Oh, really? Yeah, they have three oh, days. Oh, you're right, you're right. Yeah. They have a day to get to, to New York for a Today Show taping that's promoting mm-hmm. this, this show, and then he has to get to the Greek theater in L.A. for this show. And the idea is that the show is a 10-year anniversary celebration of some great successful show he had done back in 1999. So he's kind of a rock star on the wane. Indeed. And I think uh, I think it's kind of set up as this Mission Impossible. He knows that it's going to be difficult, but he's a huge... I think it's really important to note that he's a huge fan of Outer Snow, and so that's kind of what's driving him to to take on this mission and to... And it's his kind of big break as far as being this young record executive. So I think that um, that he doesn't want to fail, and hence just being led incredibly, ridiculously astray by Alice Snow, which is, we should note, it's Russell Brand reprising his role from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So he was uh, Sarah Marshall's boyfriend in that film, and I think it's not a sequel, but he's the same character. Yeah, it's a so spin-off of sorts. Right. Sorry? It's a spin-off, yeah, like exactly. A spin-off. 
Another backstory Sorry. that we should mention is that Jonah Hill is also having problems with his girlfriend back at home. And um, and so it's not clear as he leaves on this wild partying trip whether they're broken up or not, which comes up throughout the movie, especially with an ongoing gag, which I actually thought was pretty funny every time where he accidentally dials her. He just sits yeah, on his phone reading. or something. And, and <laughs> she keeps hearing, you know, hearing him at these insane parties doing ecstasy and, you know, going to lap dance clubs and things like that. So so he's on pretty bad terms once he, he gets back to L.A. with her. Exactly, and that's Elizabeth Moss from from Mad Men, and I thought she was I thought she was pretty good. She basically plays a sleep deprived doctor, and uh, and although yeah, I didn't quite get the attraction between them. I don't know whether it was just because she was sleep deprived that there was no as a couple they just didn't really work for me. But uh, but yeah, she was at least charming. I thought. Well, it was a more substantial female part than a lot of these kind of boy boy party movies have. But actually, well, yeah. your mentioning that you don't get the attraction between them kind of brings me to one of my major problems with the movie, which is that I really just don't like Jonah Hill as a performer. And that has nothing to do with the fact that he's not physically attractive or whatever. I just, I don't think he's funny. I don't really understand the appeal, appeal of that ongoing Jonah Hill character. He's a little bit less abrasive in this movie than he, he mm-hmm. has been in things like Superbad, which I really didn't like him in either. But I mm-hmm. guess I just don't see, he seems to be trying to play some sort of the Seth Rogen role here but i don't think he has any of that of that wit there's something about seth rogan that always seems smart even when he's in a movie that's not so smart and i just don't really see jonah hill as much of anything at all he's just to me just is just sort of a plain vanilla marker in that in that regular schlubby guy role do you get that and i think yeah i think here he's also he's also stuck with the straight man role and that just doesn't do him any favors i think i mean i didn't mind him in in super bad i thought that I mean that idea of the teen gross-out comedy. I think it suited his shtick more than, say, you know, the other other roles he's been in. Knocked up. I just thought, yeah, he's quite vanilla in that. But playing the straight man um, to Russell Brand's, you know, insane rocker, he just yeah, he doesn't really have much to do. And what he does have to do is kind of have this relationship uh, furor with his with his girlfriend and um, and be kind of drunk and stoned for most of the movie and yeah it just it just doesn't really quite work it just kind of he's okay it's just it's nothing that's that's captivating enough to carry the film I don't think right but Russell Brand, who plays the other major role, Aldous Snow, is, is the opposite of Bland. I don't think that this is the best showcase for him in this movie, but I do think he's really funny. And because, you know, you, um, you lived in the UK and know a little bit more about Russell Brand's career there, I wanted you to give us a little Russell Brand setup for those who don't know or only vaguely know who he is. Well, he is incredibly close to this character. Um, in the UK, he's, he's a stand-up comic, an incredibly successful one. He's actually coming out to Sydney in a couple of weeks as well, so... He plays to kind of crowds of 20,000 people. Um, he's also been on Big Brother in the UK, not as a contestant, but as a presenter on Big Brother. And he's also very publicly um, made very public admissions of being a sex and a heroin and an alcohol addict. And the interesting story with Forgetting Sarah Marshall is that he, Russell Brand, came in to audition for the role and they basically told him just to forget the script and play himself. And he, I remember seeing a, an interview with him where he said he didn't know that that was a to take that as a compliment or a criticism of his acting abilities. So I think with that in mind, um, there is a very realistic dimension to this alter, this kind of cinematic alter ego of Aldous Snow. Which, and how would you describe that cinematic alter ego? Well, he's, he's basically, in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, he was sober, wasn't he? And so I think... Now he's gone off the rails and he's completely, you know, drunk and, and back on heroin. And the other... Oh, we actually didn't mention he, he has 
an on-again, off-again relationship with a pop starlet, Jackie Q, uh, which I'm not sure. Do you guys have Lily Allen in the States? She's a British Oh, yeah, um, we know Lily star. Allen. Mm-hmm. Mm, so it's is that who is I that got, who the character is supposed to be based on? I think it. Well, to me, it, the musically, it's very much a ripoff of Lily Allen. But as far as the persona, she reminds me more of another British uh, celebrity, D-grade celebrity uh, called uh, Jordan. But yeah, she's very much kind of the his femme fatale. And his she's played by Rose Byrne. We should say played by Rose Byrne, who's an Australian. So there you go. I thought she was brilliant. Actually, I thought she her parts were really, really funny. Yeah, the, their whole um, relationship is quite terrific. I like the moment where they break up, basically on an Entertainment Tonight type show. <laughs> she gets asked some very <laughs> vacuous question about what do you think of his new album, and she starts to talk about how bored she is and how she wants to go off with other guys, and that's the end exactly. of it for them. Well, exactly. And the point of that is that. Is that he's sober then, isn't he? And so then she's basically saying, "Well, you're boring when you're sober, and I prefer you when you're drunk." Um, which was my kind of big, well, it was my kind of big problem with the the film was its idea of sobriety and celebrity, and it was a pretty brutal commentary, I thought, on this celebrity machine which prefers its stars to be kind of half baked. Um, I actually thought of it; it was kind of like. You need to be the Goldilocks of drug addiction. It was too much and you're useless and too little and you're boring. Right. And so I felt like the the film walked a very fine line. Yeah, you know, I don't know about you, but I have a huge soft spot for forgetting Sarah Marshall. So I was sort of excited for this movie because it, it does carry over that Russell Brand character. And mm-hmm. um, even though forgetting Sarah Marshall is not a perfect movie, I think that in this this genre that there seem to be two or three of every summer now of the, the, the boy friendship sort of gross out party movies that um mm-hmm. that forgetting Sarah Marshall was was a really well done one and that this one was really disappointing and I think one of the main reasons is something that it has to do perhaps in part with the sobriety and celebrity question but it has to do with the moral universe that this movie presupposes I mean this movie is all about people doing things to one another that are really really terrible things right I mean it's about this friendship being forged between the record executive and the and the rock star during the course of this crazy three night extended party together and the friendship does emerge by the end of the movie, and we're supposed to believe that Aaron is now his producer and that they you know, are, are lifelong friends. But they consistently, particularly um, Aldous Snow to Aaron Green, just treats him horribly throughout the movie. And it, it forces him to be in his enabler, forces him to go out and buy drugs for him in the middle of the night, gets him nearly arrested for putting heroin in his rectum in an airport scene that's completely horrifying. I mean, the idea that someone would do this to you and that you would later be their friend without any real reparations being made was really disturbing to me. I felt like there was something off in the balance of the ecology of friendship in this movie and that it was just sort of implied that all you need to do is have three days of debauchery with someone and you'll be bonded forever whether or not you actually treat each other well at any point during that time. Well, isn't that, I think, maybe we're the wrong gender to be discussing this, but isn't that what guys sometimes do? I mean, they they kind of go out and, and get hammered together and then suddenly they're friends. But I agree with you. I think that it was kind of odious to the lengths that they pushed it. And I know that that's comedy and, and they're trying to push the boundaries. But, the, I mean, the whole idea of, of him being a, a drug smuggler and having to, yeah, put heroin in his rectum and then the awful scene where... where uh, he decides to kind of hold it ransom, doesn't he? Um, literally and figuratively, I guess. And then Aldous decides that, no, no, he needs his drugs and basically pulls it out, pulls this you know, thing of heroin out of, 
out of his rectum. And right, which I mean, we get to see in silhouette through this kind of screen. At least we're given that, that, that much dignity. <laughs> but what's really kind of amazing after that, I mean, it's sort of like this, you know, this awful sort of almost rape-like scene, right, where he takes it out. Mm. And then you would think that there would be a moment that, that Jonah Hill would just be so disgusted that he would just say, I can't do this anymore. I'm not taking you to the Greek. Fuck you. Exactly. And he would just storm off. And instead, almost immediately afterwards, what does he do? Oh, he stamps the heroin into the ground, right? So he wastes all those drugs. And then mm-hmm. he agrees. He lets himself be sent out on this horrible, terrifying errand to, to go to the scary drug dealer's house and get more drugs. I mean, all of these things seem like they fit within the framework of um, a, a drunken night movie. But but to me, it always seems like, well, then there has to be some pushback. There has to be some moment where there, where the two characters clash and and there's some sort of reparation offered. I think even within the grammar of the guy party movie that a good one will do that. I mean, I'm trying to think of some recent movies that haven't had this problem. Role models didn't have this problem. The guys treated each other like crap, but then there was some actual pushback from it. Forgetting Sarah Marshall didn't have this problem. But then there's this other subset that I see emerging, and it really bothers me when I think about the boys, the youth of today, watching these movies and learning how their male (laughs) friendships are supposed to work from a movie like Superbad or like this, or I thought like the recent Hot Tub Time Machine. I don't know if you saw that, but it also had this kind of sense of like let's all just get really drunk and high and treat each other like crap for a few days and then we'll all emerge on the other side better men for it yeah i think i mean i had a couple of points to that that uh first of all maybe our romance with bromance is kind of coming to an end because they're trying to figure out what to do with it and um you know all of these bromance films are coming out uh, like you know the hangover and pineapple express and they're kind of they started out as being something quite sweet and now they're going into these really strange areas of, yeah, debauched kind of romps. Um, but the other, the other thing, I wondered whether or not it was kind of a legacy of, of jackass and that kind of, you know, showing affection and bonding through, through pain right. and ritual humiliation. You know, it's just, I mean, that seems to be the legacy of, of that film franchise and whether or not somehow those, the bromance and jackass are kind of now being merged into a super group of awfulness. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's Does that strange. Make any sense? Yeah, perhaps so. I mean, it's certainly. I, I think that the the idealization or the you know romanticization of bad behavior comes from not just jackass, but from sort of reality competition, humiliation, mm-hmm. fests in general. And I hadn't thought about the the crossover between that genre and the bromance genre, but it definitely it definitely does exist. So as long as we're talking about debauchery and ritual humiliation, we should definitely spoil the threesome, right? So there's this moment about three quarters of the way through the movie where they're back in L.A. They've actually made it there, but the Greek concert is still a few hours away. And Russell Brand shows up by surprise at Aaron Green's door where Aaron Green is about to, I believe, propose at any rate, make up with his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And he bursts into this intimate moment and sits down and sort of starts to counsel them in a way. And uh, and then suddenly it morphs into this thing where he suggests a threesome. And I think I think it's implied that to get back at Aaron Green, I'm not quite sure why she accepts, but the girlfriend agrees to the threesome, right? And then they proceed to go through with the threesome. And I wanted to know what you thought of that scene and why you think, again, what what did you think that that particular moment of debauchery was supposed to give them? It sort of seemed to me that the message was, oh, well, this was such a sordid, disgusting experience for the couple that it bonded them together <laughs> forever after. And I didn't quite know if that was what it was supposed to be in the movie for, or if it's just simply supposed to be like a shocking, silly, sexy I mean, I think it's supposed to be, yeah, a shocking, silly sex scene for sure. And I think it was very much about about the Daphne character um, getting back at Aaron and saying, well, look, you've had your lost weekend and now I'm going to have my kind of, you know, sexual experience. 
It really um, is a but, terrible humiliation for Aaron again. I mean, essentially what's implied in the threesome is that she has really good sex with Aldous and he sort of sits there like a third wheel feeling completely useless and mortified yeah, the whole time. he pretty much gets bumped out of the bed, doesn't he? He's in the bathroom for a bit of it, isn't he? And, and you know, I just, I don't know, I, I felt like it was obviously supposed to shock. But as far as, as, you know, further to your point about the fact that what is the, the rationale and what is the relationship between the two men... I'm not sure you want to kind of forge that friendship in the bedroom. (laughs) And I don't really think it it works. And I think it's indicative of the greater problem with the film, which is that it's tonally all over the place. They have these quite serious moments and then they're having these slapstick moments. But when, you know, with the sex scene, it actually, to me, it actually got quite tense. It's like, well, what's, What's actually going to happen here? Well, and it could have been a moment for some real dramatic development. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't mind as a plot point the idea that they would have the threesome. I thought it sort of fit mm-hmm. in with the wild, you know, things spiraling more and more out of control sort of logic mm-hmm. of the movie. And even the idea that Aaron Green would be humiliated. But once again, as with the, you know, heroin up the bum scene, it sort of seemed like Aaron Green just sort of had to take it and take it and take it. And there wasn't any moment after that scene where either he and the girlfriend or he and Russell Brand sat down and said, look, that was really weird. And, you know, we have to figure out what that's going to mean going forward. It was just sort of like, well, that happened, you know, and now mm. on to the next thing. The only thing that they did do was, was say, oh, we need to burn these sheets, didn't they, right at the end there? And right. That well, that was the, that was yeah. the idea that the sordidness of the encounter had somehow brought the two of them together. But it just Indeed. it just sort of seemed like nobody ever really said that. And there was certainly no follow up between the two men about what does it mean that we just shared your woman you know, <laughs> or that I sort of hogged her from you right before my my rock concert. That seems like that would be a pretty ego destroying thing to have happen. But I just don't think it really affects Aldous, does it? Like it's another day in the office for him, whereas for Aaron, it's just completely kind of undone him. And, and he's just standing there pantsless for a while, isn't he? He's just got his T-shirt on. But if it doesn't affect Aldous, then why should we care about the character? That just seems like it's a very, very basic problem with, you know, if it's going to be a movie about a friendship being forged through some sort of, you know, ordeal, then both characters have to be affected by the ordeal. Exactly. And I think, I mean, I think that was my main problem with the film is that what made for a scene-stealing sideshow in Forgetting Sarah Marshall doesn't work as the main attraction. I think... I think Alice Snow was great uh, in the bit part and coming in and being this kind of raunchy, you know, sex addict um, guy who teaches, doesn't he, he teaches some, some virgin how to, how to make love to his new wife or something. And, you know, but here he just doesn't have, I don't think he has the dramatic chops as an actor. I don't think Russell Brand does. And I don't think he's written to the extent that you actually really care about him. Alice, let me just stop you there for a quick word from our sponsor, Audible.com. It's a place where you can go to get more than 60,000 downloadable audiobooks. And we have a deal with Audible where if you sign up for a one-book-a-month subscription through our website, which is www.audiblepodcasts.com slash spoiler, you can get a free audiobook, which you get to keep even if you decide not to stick with your membership after the 14-day trial period. The audiobook that we have to recommend this week is sort of related to our theme in that it's a book about pop culture and rock and roll. It's Chuck Klosterman's Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, A Low Culture Manifesto. And it's actually read by Chuck Klosterman as well. Um, It's available on Audible. And again, the place to sign up for that deal is www.audiblepodcasts.com slash spoiler. So back to our discussion. As long as you're talking about Russell Brand's weaknesses as an actor, I wanted to spoil the the very ending and this weird maudlin stretch that happens right after the threesome. At that point, it's it's almost time for the concert. And for various reasons, Russell Brand has decided that he's going to take his own life or at least pretend to take his own life and get a lot of attention for it. And so um, there's this very, very sentimental moment when he 
is about to jump off a hotel roof and Jonah Hill comes running to tell him not to jump while all these people are watching horrified from down below. And then he actually does jump but lands in the swimming pool below. But, and this was a really hard detail to stomach, he kind of hits his arm on the side of the swimming pool and seems to have some kind of compound fracture or something. He has this horrible bleeding wound with bones sticking out of it. As he's having this um, dramatic confrontation, he's in the pool bleeding into the water and talking to Jonah Hill about you know his dad. I don't know why. What? Why is that scene more maudlin than the rest? What's he bringing up? Well, I think. I mean, not only is it a, a massive, almost famous ripoff, but um, I think. Yeah, I think he he's ju- he's trying to say that he doesn't want to be a celebrity anymore, and then that's what was weird for me because then he he almost becomes the sacrificial lamb, bleeding and all, um, and decides to step back into the spotlight. So that's supposed to be the emotional climax for him. He's supposed to have have decided he's going to end it all and then for whatever reason his, his best friend that he's just shagged his woman turns up and and then he decides well he can continue with life and he is going to step back into the spotlight and yeah it just it would seem to be they rushed to the to the finale after that and you never quite got a hang of of what the emotional kind of reality was between these two men Not which i all. think we yeah, we're saying on and on that it it was never established to begin with. Well, it, it, that was a moment, too, where if I had been Aaron Green, I mean, just the human in, in you and the viewer says, well, if you're really his friend, you have to not let him get on stage and you have to go fix his compound fracture. <laughs> and in fact, Aaron Green does sort of try to keep him from going on. But then in the end, once again, the movie seems to sort of affirm that it's perfectly fine that their friendship will survive the fact that you know russell brand goes on stage drunk with a compound fracture and gives a show that actually we're supposed to perceive as being a great show that that does revive his career and so once again the end the moral message of the movie just seemed very very murky murky at the end what does it mean to be a good friend in the universe of this movie yes i think i think it's certainly murky i mean blood and all but i also think we were supposed to maybe take from it that they both rediscovered their love of music or at least I think that was the point I think that Aaron was supposed to instill in Aldous his love of of Aldous's music and so earlier on he tells him why he didn't like that awful African child album and tells him the truth to his face and obviously Aldous is surrounded by yes men and has never heard any criticism before and so I think the whole emotional climax was supposed to be that Aldous starts to believe that he actually does like music and he does want to get back on stage. But, yeah, the fact that he's got this compound fracture and, uh, you know, is, is rolling around wet and drunk, it's, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really pay off. It's a very distasteful ending. And, of course, after that moment of truth that he's, he dares to be honest about the album, there are many, many moments in the movie of just, just abject sycophancy on the part of Jonah Hill. So that makes <laughs> the moment of truth or honesty about the album seem, seem a lot harder to believe. Well, since we're talking about the music, let's let's finish off with what I thought was maybe one of the funnier jokes in the movie, which also ends up being the title of one of the best songs in the movie that Aldous sings, maybe the only good song he sings, which is Furry Walls. So there's this moment <laughs> during their, their trajectory across the country that the two men, boys, end up in, in Vegas, you know, having a, a crazy Vegas night, which includes an encounter with Aldous's terrible drunken father who abandoned him years ago. And during this crazy night, they wind up smoking this, this joint that they call a Jeffrey that's laced with, I don't know, PCP and all kinds of scary drugs. I have to say that calling it a Jeffrey was kind of a hilarious line. So they both end up smoking this Jeffrey, which puts them in this crazy psychedelic headspace. And 
and here's where the furry wall joke comes in is that this strip club or whatever it is they're in has this kind of fake fur tacked onto the walls and the only way that they can hold on to their sense of reality is to stroke these furry walls and so they keep sort of screaming at each other stroke the furry walls it doesn't come across very well in a podcast but it's kind of a good joke at one point sean combs is in there stroking the furry walls and that's sort of it for that joke but then at the end of the movie the very end the coda where it's supposed to be six months later and aldous is clean again and he's writing new songs he sings this song, which I thought was incredibly catchy, called Furry Walls. It's sort of a 60s-style um, psychedelia song, which was actually co-written, I saw in the credits, by Jason Siegel, which I was, I was happy to see. And, um, and I thought that was a nice kickoff for the movie. I mean, I had really lost patience with the movie by that point, but I did get a smile when the furry walls came back in song form. I felt like the music throughout the film was, was quite good, and I wish that they brought that in a bit more, don't you think? Even having... Uh, even having Jackie Q, Rose Byrne's character, they have a few moments of seeing her being a pop star and singing these ridiculous songs, and they open with the great African child song. So it's almost like the, the music got lost in this supposedly rock and roll road trip. It's true. I like a music, a movie about musicians where you really get to know the songs by the end of the movie, where you've may, maybe seen them be performed a couple times in a couple of different contexts. And uh, that didn't really happen in this movie. You just hear little scraps of song here and there. I, and I do wish that it had gone a little bit more with the, uh, the musicality of that persona. All right. Well, Alice, thank you so much for staying up past midnight to call in from Australia for this Slate Spoiler special. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you'll do one again soon. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.